Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. On the third day of a massive outdoor music festival in rural upstate New York, a man took to the main stage to address the gigantic crowd of young concertgoers. Looking out at the tens of thousands of people who had gathered for the historic event, he said, You've proven something to the world. The important thing that you've proven to the world is that half a million kids can get together and have three days of fun and music and have nothing but fun and music. And God bless you for it. 30 years later, a similar event started off with good intentions, but quickly dissolved into chaos. Instead of three days of fun and music, the event was marred by violence, looting, and arson. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we're looking back at the disaster that was Woodstock 99. To understand Woodstock 99 and what happened there over three blistering hot days in July 1999, we should first look back at the original Woodstock in 1969. The iconic cultural event took place August 15th to the 18th in Bethel, New York, about 90 kilometers away from the town of Woodstock located in the Catskills. You see, in the 60s, Woodstock was home to an artist's colony, attracting musicians like Bob Dylan, who lived on a nearby estate. Dylan had moved there with his wife and three young kids after withdrawing from touring because of a motorcycle accident. Around the same time, four young men with some money to burn were looking for an investment opportunity, and they came up with an idea to build a recording studio in Woodstock. To raise money for the project, they envisioned a big concert in the area, attended, of course, by Dylan and other musicians. But the men immediately hit two major snags. Dylan said, no thanks. And the town officials said, no way did they want to host an event that would attract thousands of hippies to the area. Eventually, the guys scrapped the record studio idea and instead focused on a big outdoor arts and music festival billed as an Aquarian experience, three days of peace and music. It wouldn't be the first big rock festival. That happened in 1967, during the Summer of Love, with a legendary Magic Mountain Music Festival and Monterey Pop Festival. The guys ended up securing use of a dairy farm near the small town of Bethel, New York, owned by Max Yasger. And even though it was about an hour and a half away from Woodstock, decided to stick with the name. Next, they needed bands. Dylan had already said no. So did the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Doors, and Led Zeppelin. But luck changed when Jimi Hendrix signed on to be the closing act. Soon, other big names agreed to perform, including The Who, Janis Joplin, Joe Cocker, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, The Grateful Dead, Santana, CCR, and so many others. Organizers expected about 50,000 people to attend. But tens of thousands of people began descending on the remote location days early, pitching tents on the farmland. It was impossible for the young, inexperienced promoters to stop the flow of people. They hadn't even set up fencing or ticket booths. So at the last minute, they decided to make it a free event. And once word got out, even more people began making their way to the Bethel area farm. 
In the end, more than 500,000 people attended the historic event. And yes, it had its share of issues, overcrowding, rain, and delayed sets. But overall, it was pretty peaceful. Some say that's because everyone was on psychedelic drugs. In the years following Woodstock, it was mythologized, becoming almost a holy moment for an entire generation. Even if they didn't attend, baby boomers kept Woodstock close to their hearts. So it's really no surprise that when the 25th anniversary rolled around, that some of the original promoters thought it would be a good idea to try to recreate the magic. Woodstock 94, which was billed as Woodstock 2, took place from August 12th to the 14th on the Winston Farm in Socrates, New York, which is about 110 kilometers from Bethel, New York, where the original festival took place. But from the beginning, it was clear it was going to be a far cry from the first Woodstock, which had become synonymous with the counterculture movement of the 1960s. The 1969 festival cost about $3 million to stage. Woodstock 94, with its ATMs, pay-per-view television broadcasts, t-shirt concessions, and an appropriate fleet of portable toilets, cost $30 million. So that meant big-time corporate sponsors like Pepsi, Apple, and Haagen-Dazs were brought on board to offset the costs. 60s survivors and other critics called the new festival a corporate con job, a slick package deal that lacked the innocence and spontaneity of the original event. Even musicians who signed on for Woodstock 94 were skeptical. Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails said on MTV, I feared after I committed to do it that it would be a corporate nightmare with a Pepsi logo behind the Woodstock. But from being here, I've got a pretty good vibe. As for the music at Woodstock 94, it was like they couldn't decide if the festival was for grown-up hippies or 90s teenagers. About 50 bands took part with a mix of old and new acts. There were performances by Joe Cocker and Crosby, Stills and Nash, who both performed in 1969, along with Aerosmith and Santana. And this time, Bob Dylan made an appearance, perhaps always regretting that he skipped out on the first Woodstock. There was also a who's who of 90s music. Sheryl Crow, The Cranberries, James, Violent Femmes, Cypress Hill, Nine Inch Nails, Metallica, Arrested Development, and Red Hot Chili Peppers. An infamous performance by Blind Melon is remembered mainly because of Shannon Hoon's outfit, a white dress, hair barrettes, and mascara. Hoon was reportedly high on acid and at one point hurled the band's conga drums into the crowd. And Woodstock 94 was considered a major breakthrough moment for Green Day, who have said the show changed their lives, bringing their music to a wider audience thanks to the pay-per-view broadcast. By the time Green Day hit the stage on the third day, the area in front of the stage was a huge, muddy mosh pit. About 20 minutes into Green Day's set, fans began throwing clumps of mud and straw in all directions. In some cases, fans were chucking mud at band members. Even Green Day singer Billy Joe Armstrong joined the chaos, slamming down his microphone and throwing pieces of turf back at the crowd. 
A near riot ensued as audience members tried to storm the stage. Security guards quickly moved in, but because everyone was covered in mud, it was kind of hard to figure out who was who. And Green Day bassist Mike Durnt ended up getting tackled by a security guard and lost a tooth. That was probably the low point of the three days in terms of unruly fans. The bigger problems there were garbage and overflowing toilets, along with the mud. Three days of incessant rain had turned Woodstock 94 into mudstock. People who attended said it was a sea of mud and trash. And even though it was pretty peaceful, there were still tons of injuries. Somewhere between 300 and 350,000 people attended the event, and medical personnel said they treated a new patient every 20 seconds. Everything from bad reactions to drugs, to broken bones, exhaustion, and dehydration. And two people died on site because of pre-existing medical conditions, while two others died in a car accident on the way home after the driver of the car fell asleep. Despite all of this, Woodstock 94 was still considered a success. And any problems with the event would pale in comparison to what was in store for the next incarnation of the festival five years later. Woodstock 99 was the creation of Michael Lang, one of the promoters of the original Woodstock, along with John Schur from Metropolitan Entertainment and Ozzy Kilkenny, a financer. When they began planning the 30th anniversary event, they wanted to solve one of the problems that had plagued the festival in 1969 and 1994. Because those events were held in farmers' fields, it was impossible to secure the perimeter. So in both cases, thousands of people attended for free, which meant millions of dollars in missed revenue for the promoters. In 1969, organizers hadn't even bothered with fencing. And in 1994, concertgoers easily snuck in beer and other contraband items through a chain-link fence that barely separated the festival from the outside world. This time around, they wanted something with impenetrable borders. And that's why they picked the unlikely location of a decommissioned Air Force base in Rome, New York. The Griffiths Air Force Base had shut down in 1995, leaving 3,500 acres and dozens of buildings vacant. With access to electricity and running water, the site seemed perfect. But there were a couple major things missing. Grass and shade. It was essentially a massive parking lot. Not ideal in hot summer months. The town of Rome was more than happy to accommodate. It needed an economic boost after 10% of its residents had lost their jobs thanks to the closure of the Air Force Base. And music fans were also stoked because multi-day music festivals were not that common in the States at the end of the 90s. The first incarnation of Lollapalooza had stopped touring in 1997. Other festivals like Lilith Fair and the Warp Tour were only one-day events. And Coachella didn't exist yet. It didn't launch until October 1999, three months after Woodstock 99. Like its predecessors, Woodstock 99 was loosely planned, which is a nice way of saying disorganized. The media and the bands themselves had a hard time finding out what was going on ahead of time. As opening day approached, local officials even considered shutting it down. Security was lax, infrastructure nowhere near ready, staff underprepared and untrained. But the festival kicked off on schedule on July 23rd. 
Fans arriving for the event were met with an ominous three-mile-long, 12-foot-high fence made of steel and plywood. Both the fence, which was nicknamed the Peace Wall, and the gates were bracketed by a phalanx of security guards who wore loud yellow t-shirts emblazoned with the words Peace Patrol. Tickets were pretty steep at 150 bucks. But for many people who attended, the ticket price wasn't the worst part. You weren't allowed to bring in food or water, which meant you had to pay $4 for a bottle of water and $12 for a personal-sized pizza. Which would be okay if it was just a single show. But over three days, that was going to get big-time expensive. I remember the first day there was a there was multiple um, water, water fountains, but the lines for those were unbelievable. And so by... I'm thinking by Saturday, most of them were destroyed because people got so angry waiting for water that they would just knock it over. And that created mud. And that created more, you know, issues. That's freelance journalist Jeff Cornell. In July 1999, he was a young production associate for the MTV Radio Network, covering his first ever music festival as a reporter. He says fans dove into the mud puddles by the water fountains, while others did the same in a shallow mud puddle near a row of porta potties, somehow unaware that they were slathering themselves in human waste. Over the course of the weekend, the portable toilets were never emptied, and they became so backed up that people began relieving themselves in public, adding to the level of filth. Plus, it was scorching hot that weekend. Temps hovered between 30 and 35 degrees Celsius, and remember, there was mainly just miles and miles of black asphalt. There was no shade. It was tarmac, concrete, and some grass, but chiefly the, the, the walk between stage, the east and west stage, the two main stages, was about a mile and a half long, and it was across a tarmac. So it was, uh, you know, insanely hot, and there was, like, no shade. I remember watching people huddle next to garbage cans to just stay in shade. You know, just catch any shade you can. And those garbage cans soon overflowed and you couldn't get near them. The only place people could grab a bit of shade was inside a hangar that housed the emerging artist stage. So if you were willing to skip out on a big band in favor of some unknown act, you could get a short break from the scorching sun. The crowd size was estimated at about 220,000 people with another 10,000 people working the event on a site that really shouldn't have held more than 50,000 people. And unless you booked a hotel room months in advance, you were forced to sleep in the crowded campground where tents were pitched practically on top of each other. In the campground, there was only one shower setup with about 100 showers. So no surprise, the lineup was usually about 75 people long. Plus, they overflowed directly into the campground, soaking nearby tents. It was a total mess. The festival officially began at noon on Friday. On the East Stage, Tibetan monks chanted, and then the event MC, a radio DJ from Rochester, New York, yelled, show us your titties, which became a frequent request from male musicians and guys in the crowd. Men would surround girls and aggressively chant for them to flash. From the beginning, the atmosphere was misogynistic which wasn't necessarily caused by the male-dominated lineup, but it didn't help. There were only three female headliners out of more than 50 acts on two stages over the course of three days. Cheryl Crow, Alanis Morissette, and Jewel. 
The rest of the lineup was a bunch of predominantly aggressive white men playing for a predominantly aggressive white male audience. A major bro-fest. The first day's music lineup included a couple of white rappers who fit that description. Insane Clown Posse were known for their clown makeup, profanity, and spraying Fago pop on their Juggalo fans. Woodstock was a big show for them, so when they hit the stage and tens of thousands of fans were screaming, they wanted to say thanks in a somewhat unique way. Yo, I know that for Woodstock, tickets were a little expensive. And uh, me and Shaggy, we got paid a lot of money to be here. So we decided to give you all your money back. Each one of them balls has a $100 bill taped to it. With that, Violent J and Shaggy started kicking the rubber balls out into the crowd. When that was done, they tossed out more balls with $500 bills taped to them. Probably not the smartest and most responsible thing to do, but Insane Clown Posse, not exactly the poster boys for sensibility. As evening fell, the medics in the first aid tent behind the stage had treated hundreds of cases of heat exhaustion, dehydration, and bad trips. But so far, no serious injuries. It wasn't until the offspring took the stage at 7.30 on day one that things started getting more violent in the mosh pit. And something else was going on. It even caught the attention of offspring singer Dexter Holland. But you know what? I was noticing something I got to call your guys' attention to here for just a second. I've been noticing that there's a lot of girls coming over to the top here, crowd surfing, and they're getting really groped. You know what I mean? Now, I think just because a girl wants to go crowd surfing or whatever, that doesn't give the guys the right to molest them. You know what I'm saying? Things only got worse when Korn took the stage around 9 o'clock. Korn was at the height of its popularity and delivered a pretty powerful set. The center stage mosh pit raged with a focused intensity, leaving fans bloodied and bruised. If you watch the video on YouTube of Korn's performance, you can see a female crowd surfer fighting off dozens of men attempting to grope her. And days after the event was over, it was revealed that something even more horrible happened during the set. A young woman was raped by a group of men in the mosh pit. A volunteer working at the event told MTV he was watching Korn from the edge of the main mosh pit when he saw a girl body surfing who either fell or was pulled into a circle of men. He said it looked like they were holding her down by her arms as she struggled to get away. She was sexually assaulted by at least two men until finally being pulled from the pit by audience members who handed her to security. The volunteer said he watched in horror as five more women were pushed into the very same pit throughout Korn's set. He said they were holding the women down and violating them. Maybe not everyone was raped, but he said he was sure that the first girl was. In the festival's aftermath, at least five sexual assaults were reported to police, and the stories of sexual harassment that took place at Woodstock 99 proliferated the media. Outlets like Spin, Rolling Stone, and MTV depicted Woodstock 99 as a deeply misogynist environment where men felt emboldened to catcall, grope, and even rape women. The next day, Kid Rock further fanned the flames of aggression during his Saturday afternoon set that was sandwiched between the Tragically Hip and Wycliffe Jean. Toward the end of Kid Rock's final song, Three Sheets to the Wind, 
he urged fans to chuck their $4 water bottles. Now when we kick this beat in for the last time, I want to see every possible thing flying through the fucking air. But nothing that can hurt each other. These plastic bottles, let's have some fucking fun, y'all. Are you ready? When the band kicked in, plastic bottles began flying above the crowd. And it is just unreal. It was raining plastic bottles. And you're just watching Kid Rock. He had his back to the crowd, and it's just, there are just bottles falling over the place. And as soon as that band ended the last note, you should, they get off that stage so quickly because those bottles and more are flying and flying and flying. I mean, look, from the distance, it was a beautiful sight. Like watching stuff fly through the air, it is really cool looking, right? But when you're in that crowd and on that stage, not so cool. When he got off stage, Kid Rock told MTV News that he felt a little bad about egging on fans but was psyched at how riled up everyone got. The frenzy reached its peak that night with a grand slam of metal and new metal acts that included three of the loudest and most aggressive bands of the entire festival, Limp Bizkit, Rage Against the Machine, and Metallica. First up was Limp Bizkit, who in July 1999 had the number one album in the US with Significant Other and they were regularly battling for top spot on MTV's daily countdown show, Total Request Live. Fans of the band turned out big time for their performance. You ready to get this motherfucker going? All right, y'all. From the front to the back, like this. When Limp Bizkit hit the stage, the audience was massive. The largest crowd during the entire festival a breathtaking sea of people that stretched as far as the eye could see. They came out and it was just really loud and just bombastic. And, you know, they did what they do. I don't think they did anything different than what they normally do. It just so happened to be there were 225,000 people there and they were just at a fever pitch and they were watching the band that was the hottest band at the moment do what they do. What they did was pull out all the stops to rev up the audience. And seconds into the first song, a violent mosh pit with intense and fierce energy had formed. One witness said there was almost a stampede back from the stage with people who were trying to get away from it. Organizers noticed what was going on and asked singer Fred Durst to tell the crowd to mellow out because too many people were getting hurt. Don't let nobody get hurt. But I don't think you should mellow out. (laughs) Mellowing out? That's what Alanis Morissette just had you motherfuckers do. Birkenstock rock, y'all. This is 1999, motherfucker. Taking Birkenstocks and sticking up your fucking ass. Then Limp Bizkit launched into a cover of the ministry song Thieves. If you watch it on YouTube, it's an incredible scene. To be honest, it's hard not to get goosebumps as over 200,000 people crammed together jump in unison on Durst's command. He had one simple request of fans. If someone falls down, pick them up. But it was also around this time that revved up audience members began tearing sheets of plywood off the delay and production towers scattered around the former Air Force base. And they just started pulling them off, pulling them off, and then passing them on top of each other. People were jumping up on them. Another thing people were doing was taking blankets and tarps and 
pulling them real tight with people on top and shooting them up in the air. And I mean, you're watching people shoot 25 feet up in the air and then land in a crowd. It was, I mean, I've seen a lot of stuff and been, I've been to a lot of heavy metal shows and I've seen a lot of stuff, but never have I seen anything like that. By the time Limp Bizkit launched into their song Break Stuff, pieces of plywood were being passed through the crowd, with people surfing on top for a while and then jumping off. Fans were so riled up, they began shaking the tower where Jeff was watching the show with some of his MTV colleagues. Despite being 50 feet above the crowd, they were pelted by bottles and other garbage. Even Fred Durst joined in on the mayhem, leaving the stage to climb on top of a piece of plywood held up by concert goers. He surfed on top of the wood supported by fans while singing a cover of the George Michael song, Faith. It was around this time that MTV told Jeff and crew to evacuate the area. And we literally held hands and made a human chain and walked out from the delay tower and walked through the crowd all the way to backstage. And when I got backstage, I had two coworkers come up to me and like, check on me. Are you okay? Oh my God. And I was at that moment, I realized that, oh my God, like I was in danger. <laughs> After Biscuit ended their set and left the stage, someone came out to ask the crowd to chill out. They pleaded for fans to let the medical team get to injured people who were huddled under the towers. It was beginning to look like a war zone. The medical tent was filled with injured fans. And Jeff wondered, was it about to get worse? Limp Bizkit ends, and then up next, Rage Against the Machine. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, we're all gonna die. But surprisingly, Rage Against the Machine turned things down, literally. Jeff says they dropped the volume considerably. Their show was nowhere near as loud as Limp Bizkit, who had blown the lid off the place. Whether they did it on purpose or not, Jeff credits Rage Against the Machine with preventing things from devolving even further. And finally, Metallica closed out the night, playing a nearly two-hour set of lacerating, pounding, testosterone-filled rock. When the sun rose on Sunday morning, it was another blistering hot day. Fans who had made it this far were tired, sunburned, and dehydrated but there was still another full day of acts. The grounds were just littered with garbage. I actually had to walk equipment that day from uh, the west stage to the east stage and had to like truck it through about two and a half feet of garbage. It was like up to my knees, just trudging through garbage. The set list for Sunday was another eclectic collection of performers. Among them, Willie Nelson, Brian Setzer, Jewel, and Creed who weren't yet the most despised rock band of the 90s. There were rumors that the Rolling Stones might close out the show or Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. But in the end, there were no surprise appearances. Instead, the scheduled closers, Red Hot Chili Peppers, took to the stage to wrap things up. The Chili Peppers were also riding high in popularity at the time. Their album, Californication, which would become the band's best-selling record, had come out the previous month. The Chili Peppers' performance was supposed to mark the festival's triumphant climax. Up until that point, Sunday had been pretty incident-free. And it appeared the festival may actually get through the final day without any more major problems. Unless you consider it a problem that bassist Flea came out totally naked. But unfortunately, that's not what happened. Earlier Sunday afternoon, an anti-gun youth activist group began handing out candles to tens of thousands of fans still on site for a candlelight vigil. 
The group called PAX wanted people to light the candles during the Chili Peppers' performance of Under the Bridge. So I'm going to say probably about halfway through their set, we saw in the distance like what looked like bonfires popping up. And what people were doing is taking garbage cans, right, throwing the candles in and just lighting it up. By the time the Chili Peppers came back for an encore, there was a massive bonfire raging on the horizon. Actually, the word bonfire doesn't really do it justice. The flames were shooting so high in the air that singer Anthony Kiedis took one look and said, holy shit, it's apocalypse now out there. Make way for the fire trucks. But the show went on anyway. The Chili Peppers played the song Sir Psycho Sexy. When that song was done, you hear Kiedis ask, do you want to do it? Flea, who is still naked, says yeah. And the Chili Peppers launch into a cover of the Jimi Hendrix song, Fire. And with that, it was game over. The crowd was whipped into a final frenzy. By the time they launched into that song, it was starting to get out of control. There was like a delay tower up in flames and uh, mold. I mean, there must have been 20 different spot fires kind of going off in the distance. And they launched into that and it was just the the vibe was just kind of insane. It was uh, definitely hit a fever pitch for sure. After three days of extreme heat, overpriced vendors and overflowing toilets, Fire was the match that ignited the frustrated crowd into a burning fury. Soon, the multiple bonfires around the site raged out of control as people removed sections of the peace fence and threw them into the flames. When police and firefighters attempted to put out the largest blaze, which burned along the north wall of the festival grounds, they were pelted with bottles and rocks. Then a group of festival goers rocked the 50-foot speaker tower next to the east stage, shaking it violently. The cable snapped as steel bolts popped from their fittings, and the tower came lurching down with a massive thud. The beer garden tent was set on fire, and the mob used steel tent poles to break open the locks on transport trucks that held the food from vendor booths. Pretzels and bread were tossed out into the crowd, and the scene quickly escalated into a colossal food fight. The looting continued spreading to Ace Hardware trucks near the campgrounds, which were filled with festival goods like glow sticks. The growing blaze of vendor tents, now fed by cardboard boxes, food and camping supplies, spread to the closest truck, which became engulfed in flames. Burning wood was tossed into the trailer, which was outfitted with refrigeration units consisting of generators, propane, and coolant. And the truck quickly exploded, igniting other vehicles nearby. When it was all said and done, 12 transport trucks were destroyed by flames. By 11.45 p.m., up to 700 state troopers in riot gear had arrived on site. They successfully pushed the crowd away from the East Stage, but the campsite area chaos continued. One witness said it looked like Lord of the Flies, with kids shouting, let it burn. Police let the rioters tire themselves out before attempting to fight the blazes. So it wasn't until well after dawn broke that the flames were brought under control. 
As the sun came up, the Air Force Base looked like a bomb hit it, resembling a surreal war zone. In the end, 44 people were arrested, thousands were injured over the course of the weekend, and there was one death not related to the riots. A 24-year-old man was airlifted to hospital after suffering heat stroke in the mosh pit at the Metallica show on Saturday night. David DeRosia died the following day. At a news conference the day after the riot, co-promoter John Schur said he was bummed big time, adding he didn't think there was a kid out there that wanted there to be mass destruction. He said, I don't know if we'll ever know why these kids did this. Later on, though, the organizers tried to blame the violence and mayhem on some of the performers, like Limp Bizkit, whose high-octane music fueled unruly mosh pit behavior. Jeff Cornell says that's not fair. You know, look, Limp Bizkit got a lot of heat afterwards, but as I previously mentioned, they just do it. They do what they do. They didn't do anything different. To blame the whole thing on music is a far cry. I think it's the money, the price gouging, the fact that people couldn't get water at a certain point, you know? and then mixed with the heat and everything else, I think people were pushed to the brink. In particular, organizers have been criticized for a lack of proper security at the event. There were reports that a lot of the unqualified and untrained security guards hired for Woodstock 99 were fired before the festival even started because they were intimidating and stealing from other guards in the barracks where they were being housed. In addition, critics have said festival organizers didn't have a proper security plan, which meant the guards were unprepared for what turned out to be an aggressive crowd. And they had a hard time getting anywhere near the stage where most of the mosh pit violence was taking place. Staffing in general was a major problem at the event. There were reports of low-paid workers being denied water or regular meals causing them to walk off the job partway through the festival, leaving trash bins overflowing. Certainly one of the most disturbing aspects of Woodstock 99 was the danger to young women who attended. Ad-Rock from the Beastie Boys spoke out about the sexual assaults when he took to the podium at the MTV Video Awards about a month later. All the musicians here, I think we can talk to the promoters and make sure that they're doing something about the safety of all the girls and the women that come to our shows. I think we can talk and work with the security people to make sure they know and understand about sexual harassment and rape and they know how to handle these situations. You know what I'm saying? Respectfully. Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine went so far as to say Woodstock 99 was the low point of new metal. He says in the book Louder Than Hell that the rapes in the pit, the thrashing of the sights, it just seemed like it distilled the worst elements of metal. Others have described Woodstock 99 as the day the 90s died and the end of rock and roll. Jeff disagrees. Everyone tries to kill rock. I mean, rock ain't going anywhere. It falls in and out of popularity. Look, new metal was just taken off. And if you want to consider that in the rock category, it did not kill rock because, I mean, Limp Bizkit and Korn and all those bands went on and had very successful early 2000s, right? Um, You know, they parlayed their Woodstock stuff into continued success. It wasn't like this stopped new metal. If if, if all those bands disappeared after after this festival, I would say, yes, it killed rock. But it didn't kill rock. uh, Nothing will kill rock and roll. In more recent years, promoter Michael Lang still hasn't acknowledged that organizational issues may have played into the riots and violence at Woodstock 99. 
He told Billboard in 2009, I think the aftermath of 99, the imagery of kids sort of dancing around the fire, was more dramatic than the actual event. The problem with 99 sort of erupted after the last act went off stage, and it was really a couple of hundred kids who were running rampant. At that point, Lang was still talking about another Woodstock taking place in 2019 to mark the 50th anniversary. But that turned out to be wishful thinking. After a series of financial problems, venue changes, and artist dropouts, Woodstock 50 was killed a little more than two weeks before it was set to take place. Music critic Stephen Hyden believes that's the end of the Woodstock brand. He was recently quoted in the Washington Post as saying, everything has an expiration date. I think Woodstock passed that a long time ago. Thanks for joining me for this look back behind the mess that was Woodstock 99. Several listeners have written to me suggesting this topic. Thanks to each of them for the excellent suggestion. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have an idea for an episode, please let me know. You can reach me through Twitter at 1990s History, also through Instagram and Facebook. Or send me an email at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. Thanks to my very special guest, Jeff Cornell. Love chatting with him about Woodstock. If you want to read more about his experience, he has a great piece he did for Variety. I'll link to it in the show notes. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Kinzora. Dila Velasquez is our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.